0: All right, and uh, for those joining us online on Facebook, thank you for joining in. Be glad to have you uh, comment or like. Uh, anything that works for you along the way there. We do have someone who's ready to kind of host and connect with you, so be glad to have you connect there. But for those in the room, thank you for being here. Um, So good to see you guys this morning. Grateful to have you here. Well, you've joined us in what is part three, I think, of a nine-part series we're calling Follow Me, and it's really uh, looking at Jesus' parables and stories that he tells about an invitation to life. And to kind of get started this morning, I wanted to just identify a phenomenon that you probably experienced or seen before, and that is this, that there are a few things that will make a two hundred pound man more comfortable in a room full of strangers than an eight-ounce styrofoam cup of coffee. <laughs> you ever notice that? You give someone a cup of coffee to hold or a cup of whatever to hold, and they can walk through a strange room, and all of a sudden, they feel a little bit more secure. Isn't that right? It's funny, isn't it? It's almost like now I can kind of hide behind something, kind of like for me, sometimes I don't mind having something here that I can maybe hide behind if things aren't going all that well for me, that we all have things like this little cup of coffee that we tend to have. And as we walk through our days, we have these little cups that we walk through our day with that kind of help us get through our day. For guys, sometimes if you're going to try to really connect with a girl, you know that you you need a, what do we call that? A wingman, right? You need a wingman. You need someone who's going to help you in the moment know what to say. Ladies, for some reason, you go to the bathroom together. We're not quite sure why that is, but we understand that happens. Why? All of a sudden, you have someone there that you can depend on, maybe have a conversation. I don't even want to ask too many questions about what happens in those environments. But the thing is, we all have these things, these little cups, if you will, and I'm going to call it, instead of a cup of coffee, a cup of confidence. It's a cup of confidence that I'll walk through my day with, and I'll fill it in the morning with my little plans for the day. I'm going to wake up, and maybe I'll start with my morning habits and routines or disciplines, or maybe I'll wake up, and I know my, if I work of me. If my hair is all wrong, maybe I'll get it all right, and I'll look in the mirror, and I'll imagine this is going to help me. I'm having a good hair day today, so I'm going to walk through the day with a little bit more of a hop in my step because it's kind of filled my cup of confidence. And I walk through the room of my day, and I run into people who I'm not sure how to interact with or whatever. I kind of carry with me this little eight-ounce styrofoam cup of confidence that gets filled with all kinds of things, some things intentional and some things very unintentional. And the thing is, here's what we know about life, and that is this, that all of us, all of us, we want things to be right with our world. We all want things to be right with our world. There's actually a Bible word for this, and the Bible word we're going to see today, that's called righteousness. That that word right, kind of spell that out and then add to it some usness to it, and you have righteousness, that this idea of righteousness is this concept, that we all want things to be right with our world. That is when the Bible talks about righteousness, that we want things to be right with God and with each other. Now, in order to get there, there's also this, but we have to to get there. We know that we need to deal with what's wrong. We want things to be right, but we know that we need to deal with what's wrong which is why when you wake up and your hair is wrong, you make it right. And you wake up and the smell is wrong, you make that right. When you wake up and you know that the plans for the day are wrong, you make it right. That we know that in order to make things right with our world, we have to deal with what's wrong. There's a Bible word for the second part of that phrase as well. That second part of the phrase about making taking care of what's wrong is a Bible word called justification. It's the idea of being freed from guilt, being acquitted. So, in this phrase, we're talking about both righteousness and justification. We want things to be right, and we also want to be justified. We want all things in our life that are wrong to be taken care of. And so, to get there, what we will often do is fill our little cup of confidence, the cup that we want to make, help us make everything right with the world, with An answer to all of the things that are wrong with our world. So we'll kind of fill it with, I'm going to make my hair better, I'm going to make my schedule better, I'm going to make my habits better, I'm going to make my friends better, I'm going to do whatever, and we're trying to deal with what's wrong so that everything will be right. It's a constant cycle of seeking justification so that we can have righteousness, of dealing with our wrongs so that all can be made right. This is just how we live. Jesus is brilliant, (laughs) I don't even need to say that, and he knows this cycle is a part of our life almost every day, and he knows that we want to carry around a cup of confidence with us everywhere we go, and that to be without this is to be exposed and vulnerable, which is not appealing to any of us. And so he speaks to his disciples about the basis of our confidence, the basis of how we're even going to approach this life that we live. And what he gives us is not just one cup of confidence, but actually two options. He lays out, and we're gonna see in this parable in front of us today, two different approaches to how you can walk through life two different cups that we fill sometimes with confidence this way and sometimes with confidence this way and the parable that Jesus tells is about this issue of how we make things right with our world by dealing with what we know is wrong and so if you have a bible with you I invite you to turn to the gospel of luke it's the third book in the new testament there's a bible in the pew in front of you if you don't have one or you can flip through on your phone but luke is writing and he's recording a story of Jesus. And Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 18. And in Luke chapter 18, we're going to begin in verse 9 and go through several verses to kind of pick up the story of Jesus speaking with his disciples. So here he begins in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. We begin by seeing the first cup right away, the first cup. He says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So Jesus is taking one of these cups and he's saying one cup, one way to... To one source of your confidence is going to be your own righteousness, the things that you put in this cup. For those who are confident in their own righteousness, for those who wake up and make sure that they're in control of how their day is going to go, who look at their habits, their history, their past, their accomplishments, their reputation, their ability to engage socially, their intellect, their beauty, their talent, their skill, and fill the cup with those things. He's saying to those who want to fill a cup this way, those who want to fill a cup this way, let me tell you a story told this parable. Verse 10, two men, he said, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And I pause it to set up the setting quick. Two men go up to the temple to pray. Here's what's very important. If you know about the temple a little bit, you know that the temple has been the the center or the crux of Israel's worship. It is the main cultural icon. It is not just um, a place to pray, but it is the place that mirrors and reinforces cultural values. And if you know anything about the temple, you also know this, that the the temple um, supports segregation, for lack of a better term. It's set up that way. There are separate places for men and separate places for women. There are separate places for Jews, separate places for Gentiles. There's separate places for clean and separate places for unclean. There's separate places for the priests and separate places for the non-priests. It is a cultural icon that sets up and reinforces that these segregational values exist within Israel's culture at the time. It isn't just in the temple that men were separate from women. It wasn't just at the temple where clean were separate from the unclean. The temple was a physical representation of these intrinsic values that walking down the street, if you were a woman, you would feel the segregation. It is reinforced by the temple. If you were unclean, you would feel the segregation reinforced by the temple. It is a cultural representation of the values of this space, and so it's at the temple that Jesus frames this story. By the way, we have these temples in our world today, too. Social media segregates those with more followers from those with less, does it not? Who gets in the car with who to go to Wawa after a game? Some get to go and some do not. Who gets the corner office and who does not? Who wins politically and who does not? That our culture, just like the culture in Israel's time, segregates the haves and the have-nots. And we feel it and we sense it. And so it's this space that Jesus sets up this parable. He's creating this story to tell the people about how things are working in his world. He goes on in verse 11. He says, "'The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, "'God, I thank you that I am not like other people, "'robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, "'or even like this tax collector. "'I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get.'" Let's look at what this Pharisee says. It's it's amazing how Jesus puts this. So he stood by himself, which is normal because he's segregated. No one is going to be bothered by that. He deserves the space that he gets. He is, after all, a law-abiding Pharisee. So he gets to be close. He gets to be real close to the heart of the temple. And he gets to be separate from those who are unclean, those who are non-priests. But then look at his prayer. It's really a declaration, I would call it a declaration of self-dependence. It's a declaration of saying, God, I'm so thankful that the cup that I have is not like the cup of other people. And you look at this, he's saying, I, 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 I thank, I thank you, I am not like these other people. In fact, in his prayer, there's not even a hint of, of um, petition for God. He's not asking God for a single thing. Why do you need God if you're dependent upon yourself? You don't. And the Pharisee's prayer bears that out. If all that's in my cup is the confidence in myself that I have for the day, why would I pray in the first place? Because I don't need a God to carry me through what I'm able to do. And then look at the Pharisee's view of other people. He says, man, I'm just thankful that I'm not like other people. And then he puts other people, the way he talks about other people is that other people, and this is important, they're all essentially robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector, that all the other people are robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. This is how he begins to see the people around him who aren't quite as moral and strong as he is. Now, I doubt if you he were here in Jesus' story, I know this is a made-up story, but I doubt that this Pharisee would actually think that, there were, that everyone else robbed a bank, literally, or rob their neighbor, literally. But what we know about this Pharisee is that he takes the law to such a degree that any little violation of the law becomes a major offense to him. And here's where I get that. Look at the verse 12. He talks about his deeds. He says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. During this time, you really only have to fast twice a year. This guy is fasting twice a week. This isn't in the law. This is just his interest in showing how obedient and faithful he is. And then, check this out, this is so interesting. And I give a 10th of all that I get. That's beyond the law. You don't have to give a 10th of all you get in the law, not of all that you get. You just have to give a 10th of your income, basically. But there are things that you get that you don't have to give a 10th of. Pharisees like this, and we have record of this, that Pharisees like this, if they were given a gift, let's put it in our terms, if they were given a $30 Red Robin gift card, right, they would, the next Sunday, they would give 10% of that gift card to the church, lest the person who gave it to them did not give 10% of that original $30. That way, that $30 would be tithed in the appropriate way. That's a level of OCD that maybe I didn't even know existed. <laughs> But this is the way that he carries the law so far down that even if you give me something, I'm going to have to give extra. Just to be clear, this guy is tied deeply, I would say, imprisoned by moralism. And which is why if you see the world that way, everyone else is indeed a robber because you may not give all of your 10% to God. If you mess up in one little part of the law, you are an evildoer. You're an adulterer because you've had an adulterous thought, even if you haven't acted as an adulterer or an adulteress. And this is where the Pharisee is. He is imprisoned by his cup of self-dependence, that he wakes up every morning and rehearses and reminds himself and reminds God I'm able to get through my day. I'm so grateful that I'm not like the others because here's the things that I fill my cup with, my obedience, my faithfulness to an nth degree. What a contrast then when Jesus introduces the next character (laughs) and that is verse 13. But the tax collector, he said, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me a sinner. Here's the second cup. Here's the second cup. If the first cup is filled, if I could put it this way, filled with man's might, the second cup is filled with God's mercy. Here's a tax collector coming to a space where he has to stand at a distance because he's segregated from the temple. He can't come close. He is culturally set apart. He is someone who, if looked at by the people in the world and the society at the time, he, he doesn't have much respect in their eyes at all, not compared to the Pharisee. The Pharisee looks great, doesn't he? I mean, this guy is an honorable, respectable gentleman. I mean, look even how he prays. I mean, he's coming before God with all the things that he's doing. But this tax collector is a little uncivilized. <laughs> Get in the moment for a minute. Check it out. He beat his breast. He said, ah, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's beyond an intellectual ascent. That's a, a deep emotional connection that there is nothing that he can do to deserve the mercy of God. It is standing in that empty, in that room of strangers, realizing, God, if you don't come through with mercy to fill this cup, I am vulnerable and exposed. I have nothing in my cup that I bring, and so I have no confidence to enter this space unless you please, God, fill it with your mercy. And he, and he beat his breast, didn't even dare to look up at who God was, didn't even dare to engage out of the humility and asking, God, would you please, in your mercy, fill this cup? Would you please have mercy on me, a sinner? He's vulnerable, there's no plan B. And so Jesus tells a story and he finishes it this way in verse 14. He says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home, and here's our word, justified. All of his wrongs were forgiven. Went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. See, the result of the tax collector is that he actually was justified. All of his wrongs were set free, were taken care of. For the Pharisee, his, his wrongs were taken care of in front of the people whom he impressed. Don't miss this. That the people whom he impressed allowed him to be in the temple courts the people whom he impressed allowed him to kind of walk in and be respected. You see, filling your cup with confidence in the things that you do allow you to be successful. Don't miss this. It, it allows you to be successful in this world, at least in the eyes of man. That if all that we want is men to justify us and say, oh yeah, there's nothing wrong with that guy or very little wrong with that lady. I mean, she's justified. She's right to stand where she stands. If that's all I want, then the cup of self-dependence is all that I need to drink from. But it isn't the cup that justifies us before God. When I compare myself to others, I can be justified. My wrongs compared to yours, let's play that game. That's what the Pharisee played. The tax collector played a different game. He wasn't interested in being justified in front of man. He was interested in being justified before God. And so he begs for the mercy of God. And here's the struggle with all of this, that whatever gets you, whatever gets you to justification is what will keep you there. And here's what I mean by that. Whatever gets you there must keep you there. For the Pharisee, he must, because what gets him the privilege of being close to God in the temple, what gets him there is his moralism. What gets him there is his righteousness. He's consistent, he's faithful, he's always on point, he's doing the right things. There's no room for failure in this world. There's no room for a moral or ethical failure. Have you ever seen a public figure fall? You ever been a part of a politician's demise of religious leaders' ethical moral failure? You've seen that, I have too. There's very little room in the temples of our day to give grace to those people because they have blown it. We were ready to justify them, but not anymore because what got them there had to keep them there. Moralism is an imprisoning cup to drink from. Waking up and filling your day with a confidence that I can handle this. I'm not sure I need God. It is an imprisoning cup to drink from, but it is deviously successful. People will like you you will get jobs, you will get promotions, and you will get respect in the eyes of your peers. The people will be glad that you are close to God in the temple. But on the outside is this other tax collector who unashamedly beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me. I can't even look to you. Have mercy on me, a sinner, and invites God to fill his cup with mercy, with no plan B. And what gets him justified is what will also keep him justified, which is mercy, And I don't want to be justified by my works, definitely not compared to mercy. And so I have this question for you here this morning. I think Capital One asks the question on their TV commercials, what's in your wallet? I'm going to ask the question, what's in your cup? What's in your cup? What is it in your cup that you fill every morning? What is it in your cup that you're filling in this season of your life? What is it that you fill your cup with? What is it that as you wake up, as you go through your season of life, as you're kind of in this stage of life where you're in right now, what is it that fills your cup? The problem with moralism, the problem with the Pharisees' approach, is it's a self-salvation project. It's a, an approach to God that doesn't actually need God, just like the Pharisee. The prayer has nothing to do with God at all. It's simply a declaration, God, I'm, I'm good. I just want to remind you. I'm good to go. For the tax collector, it's a deep dependence upon the mercy of God. And it's not just, and here's what I want to pause and emphasize for a minute, it's not just intellectual assent. It's not just getting our minds around this change. But because of the way that Jesus tells the story, it's also getting our emotion and heart into this place. When he says that he beat his breast didn't even look to heaven. I need to ask myself the question. I want to ask you the question too. Do you remember a time? Do you remember a time when you stood outside like the tax collector did and in the same way beat your breast and said, God, have mercy on me? Do you remember that time? For some of us, maybe it's been years. For some of us, maybe we've never been there. And I'm not just talking intellectually. I'm not talking, can you tell me and explain to me that God is a God of mercy. I'm not just talking about our mind. I'm talking about our heart. I'm talking about our emotions. I'm talking about this engagement with this deep truth. You know, it was 14 years ago this Friday. This Friday will be October 2nd, 2020. 14 years ago on October 2nd of 2006, some of you know what happened that day because some of you were first responders or no first responders on that day. And that was the day that Charles Roberts walked into the Nickel Mine School and shot and shot and shot. And I want you to imagine for a minute the aftermath of that reality of being in the Roberts family being his wife or being his mom, being a family member. And here's what we know about the response from the Amish community. It was immediate. It was strong toward forgiveness. And I (laughs) couldn't believe it. Like, how can you forgive? Something like that. Like the next day. And I understand maybe it's partial and all that, but still, your posture, immediate posture, is forgiveness. Is knocking on the front door and offering mercy where the Roberts family has nothing to stand on, nothing to give to you, no cup of confidence to say, well, here's a. When you're on the other side of that door and they knock, you open. They offer you mercy. You you beat your breast and say, I don't deserve this. But when your cup is filled with mercy, it is a game changer for your soul. It is a deep change in how you see people. The person who was the teacher in that schoolhouse that day, her name was Emma. Her name still is Emma. Emma lives at the end of our lane, believe it or not. Now, I didn't know this until a few months ago. And Emma decided that she would come knock on my door. And as she walked up our lane, it was the day after one of my family members was arrested and accused of a significant crime against the Amish community. And as Emma stood there in front of me, and I opened the door, just hours into processing what's going on, and she told me her story. And then she offered me flowers and a cucumber. I don't like cucumbers. You know what she gave me that day? Mercy. Mercy, because we had nothing to stand in front of her with to justify ourselves. What could make wrongs right? Oh, maybe the degrees that I have. Did you know I have studied in college and seminary? Maybe that'll help. Oh, maybe I can make a funny joke now and then maybe that'll help in that moment. How foolish that is, right? To drink from the cup of mercy and to engage it not just in our mind, but in our heart is a deep place of engagement that I want you to experience, that I want you to revisit, that I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to come back and soften the heart again, especially in this season, in our nation, in our community, in our church where what gets you there keeps you there. If mercy gets me to justification, then mercy keeps me there. And I'm willing to give to you what has been given to me. But if my moralism gets me there, I'm going to expect you to be just as moral or better than me. And so I want to invite you to the world of the tax collector, the undignified world where he beat his breast in deep emotional understanding and awareness that God have mercy on me, a sinner. Not that we then are paralyzed and frozen and passive, but that we can act out of the cup of confidence daily that is full of God's mercy. So that when people bump into us on social media they bump into our political views and they bump into our views of the church and they bump into our views on ethics that what spills out is mercy from our loving Heavenly Father. And this is what Jesus offers us. There's two cups of confidence. One will work. It will just imprison you. The other one will free you. Will free you to feel the mercy of our loving Heavenly Father. And so I wanna encourage you, if I can, I wanna encourage you today. And if you can't find the time today, I wanna encourage you to implement this in your week, even if it's just a couple minutes in your morning, to take time to revisit the question. When is the last time I've stood before my Heavenly Father, like the tax collector, with that door opening, with nothing but a dependence on Him to get me through this day. That He can fill your cup and He can fill my cup with life giving mercy. There's no better way. All right, guys, next week I want to talk to you about what Jesus says about how to follow Him and the cost of doing that. I invite you to. Join us next week as well. Will you pray with me here this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the chance to stop and gather around the tax collector, gather around the person who understood mercy because they knew all of the wrongs in their life that needed to be made right. They knew. They didn't have access because they weren't good enough. They felt it deep in their soul. They experienced it. They had an interaction. They were moved deeply in their heart by the mercy of a loving Heavenly Father. So God, I pray that you would give us the space to strip away these little things that we lean into with our own confidence that you would help us with courage to stand before you vulnerable, facing potential shame, and invite you to fill our cup with mercy. Not that we can be empty, but that we can be full of that which truly justifies, that which truly frees, that which truly makes all things right with our world. Help us to love well, during this season especially. Renew us with your mercy, I would pray. And it's in Jesus' name we ask it.